Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the 19th of the COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and I serve as the host for these discussions. We are streaming on YouTube Live. The link to this discussion can be found at the Scott Knowles YouTube channel. Just look for Scott Knowles and COVID Calls. Or you can email me, or you can find me on Twitter, at US of Disaster. Please do help spread the word around the COVID calls, send suggestions for guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the Slow Disaster Podcast. On Friday, tomorrow, we have another Pandemics and Disasters in History discussion. This time, my guests will be Julia Engelschalt, currently a doctoral candidate in history at Bielefeld University in Germany. She's working on a dissertation titled Climate's Contagion and Comparison, American Medicine Between Colonial Warfare and the New Public Health, 1898 to 1925. And she will be joined by Jacob Remus. Jacob is a historian of modern North America with a focus on urban disasters. He's situated at NYU. He works also on working class organizations and migration, and he's the author of the absolutely essential book, Disaster Citizenship, Survivors, Solidarity, and Power in the Progressive Era. As of today, there are 1,579,690 globally confirmed cases according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. This is up from 1,495,051 cases yesterday. 451,491 of those cases are in the United States, up from 419,075 yesterday. There are now a total of 15,938 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 14,262 yesterday. There are also 24,815 reported survivors of COVID-19 in the United States. Some of you may have seen, if you follow such things, uh, a tweet that came from the President of the United States yesterday in which he encouraged Americans um, what, he, uh, what he argued was that pretty soon we'd be in a position to be able to forget um, the COVID-19 disaster. And he said something to the effect of, um, families of course will remember, but the rest of us should forget as quickly as possible. And I couldn't take issue with that more strongly. And I think one of the things that's gonna be so important for us to think about, especially as there's been um, some discussion in the last couple of days around flattening the curve in California, New York, hopefully maybe New Jersey, and some of the major media organizations like NPR have been putting out um, some resources that actually show people when they believe the peak number of cases will be. It's very important to remember that this is not just a weather forecast, that these peaks show us actual moments in which we're leading up to um, a number of deaths and illness that's still going to be climbing and then it's still gonna continue for some time after that. So I feel like it's really important, particularly in this moment, um, that we keep focused on all of the healthcare providers, all of the workers who are going to work every day and keeping hospitals, healthcare centers, open, keeping all of the other institutions that we rely upon open and safe, and that we not start acting like this disaster is over. 
remembering the dead is important and remembering the survivors is also going to be crucial too. So I think we should keep that in mind. I'd like to introduce my guest for today, Lori Peek. Lori is professor of sociology and director of the Natural Hazard Center at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Her first book is titled Behind the Backlash, Muslim Americans After 9-11. She also has a book co-authored with Alice Fothergill, Children of Katrina. And after Hurricane Katrina, she was part of a 12-member collective that studied displaced persons after, hurricane, after the hurricane. That book is titled Displaced life in the Katrina diaspora. Lori, there's many other things I could say to introduce you, but I think we can just jump into the conversation. I really want to welcome you and thank you for coming on COVID Calls. Scott, thanks so much for inviting me. And I just, at the outset, I wanted to say, I think this is breathtaking what you have been doing and the people you've been gathering together here. And I just, I, I cannot imagine how much time and effort you have put into each one of these calls to the thought and care and um, time. So just thank you for inviting me to be a part of this conversation. And thank you for leading this conversation for researchers and practitioners and the media. Thanks, Lori. It's my honor to do it. And, and as you know, as well as anyone, we have an astounding um, research community and uh, speaking with people in that community every day is, is truly humbling. We had um, Nania Campbell from the, um, from the Natural Hazard Center on, I guess, was it earlier this week? Gosh, the weeks are really uh, flowing together. So uh, it's been, it's, it's tremendous though, that even just the, the wealth of, of um, you know, resources that you have there at the Hazard Center and the brilliant people that you have there. I want to just remind everyone that you can get your questions in for Lori Peak using the YouTube live chat. You can also tweet them and just be sure to tag me at US of Disaster. People have been using that a lot um, as a way to get questions in and that, um, that's a good way to do it. So, um, Lori, great. I, I want to just start the way I've been starting um, with all the guests is just ask you, so you're in Boulder, you're in Colorado. Um, how are things there? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, so Boulder uh, is, for those who haven't been here, Boulder is a university community of about 100 some thousand people, but the university itself has nearly 40,000 students, I think. Um, and Boulder was one of the early spots within the, the state to have some confirmed cases. Um, overall, within our state, our governor is Jared Polis, and he was really one of the governors in our nation as the cases started to accumulate here in Colorado, or in Colorado, he really took some early mitigation steps. And so uh, we do have several thousand confirmed cases in the state, but our uh, governor and our local elected officials have been pursuing some pretty um, aggressive measures to try to uh, stop the spread here in the state. And so that's sort of the high level overview here in my home. I have mm. to say it's, and I, some of my colleagues I've talked to about this, it's this incredible um, juxtaposition between sort of life as normal and the privilege that comes with actually having a home mm. and having internet access and having a space where we can walk outside. And so in some ways life marches on in terms of my professional life, even as 
so much suffering swirls all around. And I just want to thank you for the ways that you start these calls every day with the numbers of cases, because I think that helps to remind us of the gravity of the situation and um, of what it is that we are facing right now. So that's, that's how things are going here. And I'm thankful to be able to be here and to speak with you today. Is there a large health system there in Boulder? So Boulder has quite a robust health system mm -hmm. along the, I mean, Colorado is like most states, all states in the United States where there's incredible uh, variability in terms of our health system. And so along the front range of Colorado where a large share of our population is concentrated, so in the Boulder, Denver, Fort Collins, Colorado Springs metro corridor, there's quite a robust health system in this area, but then we have many rural and underserved areas as well. But even with the relatively robust healthcare system that we have in, in this uh, Denver Metro corridor, our health system has still also been overwhelmed as well by what is happening. So I, I think we've all been looking for historical echoes and analogies here uh, with COVID-19 in part as a way to cope and also certainly as a way to learn. Um, and even to go so far as some social sciences, maybe to even predict or give us some sort of a roadmap of what's coming next. You know, there's a, to me, an unfortunate um, analogy in this moment, um, particularly with the backlash against Asian, uh, Asian Americans, Asian persons, persons of Chinese descent in the United States. And there's a parallel there, it seems to me, to some of your earlier work. And I wonder if we can talk about that a little bit starting out, because you wrote this book, Behind the Backlash, which talked about scapegoating of Muslims after 9-11. Are you seeing similarities in the way that that's playing out with the kinds of biases that are in, have unfortunately risen up in the United States around this, this pandemic? Yeah, thank you for starting there with that topic, Scott. It's one of the many, many important social issues that's emerging in the context of this pandemic that has roots that were in place well before this crisis started to unfold. So that's correct for the listeners out there. I just uh, will share a little bit what Scott's talking about. So after 9-11, I launched a long-term study of the backlash against Muslim Americans following the terrorist attacks. And the, it was actually my dissertation research that I turned into my first book, which is Behind the Backlash. And in that book, I was very concerned with both documenting the various forms of physical violence that Muslim Americans experienced after 9-11, but also the forms of verbal assault, um, the emotional impacts, the social impacts of the backlash. And so tracing that from the perspective of Muslim Americans, but also trying to understand their responses to it. And one of the things that I looked at in that book, in addition to trying to understand patterns of backlash violence, and responses to the violence among the Muslim community was also trying to understand what it means when entire communities find their grief and suffering in the aftermath of a disaster, when they find their grief and suffering invalidated. Because one of the longest term lessons of disaster is that oftentimes communities come together 
and they come together in these incredible and and altruistic and pro-social ways after a disaster and those sorts of behaviors can actually help with the response process but also to launch us into recovery and so i became very concerned about what about when entire groups of people are excluded from that sort of post-disaster pro-social moment mm. as muslim americans were after 9 11. and so that really led me to become very interested in this idea of invalidated collective grief and so when an entire population's grief isn't recognized in the context of a disaster and i think what we're seeing right now with the backlash against asian americans and asian persons the world over i think there are obviously important parallels there when there is a pre-existing context where entire groups of people have already been stigmatized and marginalized, it becomes much easier when that disaster strikes to further stigmatize and to further marginalize those populations. And so absolutely, I think there are parallels. And I wanted to say that um, in Canada, there have already been two major research projects that have been funded here in the US. The National Science Foundation funded a rapid grant. And so there are researchers who are looking at the anti-Asian backlash that's following the that's a part of this pandemic response. And so I think that's really important that there have been financial investments in supporting mm -hmm. research in this area. Well, I, so I want to follow up. I have a couple of questions, but since you mentioned the research, let me start there because that seems like a particularly difficult kind of research to do. Um, I had Rob Kane on yesterday, my colleague from Drexel, who's the chair of criminal criminology and justice studies, and he was talking about you know violence in this moment and crime going from outside to inside, and of course the the problem that as that crime goes inside, um, if it's domestic um, in nature, it's family violence. A lot of it may not go reported seems like this these kind of bias incidents also um maybe many of them don't go reported they're underreported um so there may be sort of a lack of hard data that we can rely upon so how do researchers do those kinds of studies i mean this is also to to your you know studies with the muslim community in new york after 9-11 is this you have to have pre-existing trust in those communities you have to have trusted actors that you work with how do you I guess we are asking you to give up all your trade secrets, but I mean, I, I think it's really fascinating because we can't, we have so many research questions to tackle right now. This one seems an absolutely crucial one. Yes. So um, thank you for that question and making that connection. And so this was one of the struggles after 9-11 for sure is how do we how do we get data how do we even define backlash violence because there is mm -hmm. such a spectrum and in fact in my book i introduce a typology that ranged and that was enough it was based on what the muslim americans reported to me in terms of the stigma discrimination and exclusion that they were experiencing. Mm -hmm. And this ranged everything from what I, drawing on Joe Feagan's work, referred to as hate stares. And so it's everything from sort of the, the vicious stares that Muslims would receive that would lead them to feel uh, excluded all the way to the other end of the spectrum to actually being physically assaulted and violently assaulted. And so one way that you get data is going directly to the source. And so that may come through interviewing, through conducting surveys with marginalized populations to try to learn from them about their victimization. 
but then also sometimes as researchers, we try to rely on secondary data or available data. And so some of the data sources that I relied on in my book that people are relying on right now as well to try to understand the scale and the magnitude of anti-Asian backlash. So one place that researchers oftentimes turn to is the FBI hate crime uh, data. Mm -hmm. and, but the FBI hate crime data is limited in various ways. So there's voluntary reporting. Also, there are only certain categories. So for example, in the FBI hate crime data, there is an anti-Muslim hate crime category, but there is not an anti-Arab hate crime mm -hmm. data category. So again, mm -hmm. it sort of gets at what mm -hmm. is the available data? How do we do that? So there's FBI data which uh, many people turn to, and after 9-11, there was a 1,600% reported increase in anti-Muslim incidents in just the three months following 9-11. But again, I'm gonna return to your under-reporting question because even as dramatic as those numbers are, we know they were likely a dramatic under-report. There's also civil rights data. So there are many organizations out there that have that trust in the community, and then they will compile data and information and then they will issue reports so civil rights uh, advocacy organizations oftentimes are another reliable source and then the media is a very reliable source in terms of uh, if researchers can go to the media and they can compile that information mm -hmm. as several researchers are doing right now to try to get a handle on have there been hundreds of anti-asian incidents have there been thousands mm -hmm. so those are some of the data sources to the second part of your question just briefly about mm -hmm. the underreporting and why that's such an issue is that oftentimes the communities that are targeted for blame and scapegoating after a disaster, they are already marginalized communities who may have very tenuous or strained relationships with formal institutions. And so that's why after 9-11, for example, there were many reports within the Muslim community that both um, that immigrant Muslims as well as non-immigrant Muslims were just worried and they weren't willing to go to formal authorities to report the backlash that they may have experienced because of those trust issues, because of fears of deportation mm -hmm. and other sorts of fears that oftentimes ripple through immigrant communities and other marginalized communities. So again, I think so many parallels between 9-11 mm -hmm. and what we're seeing right now. Thank you for walking us through those different data sources. I think that's really, um, that's really important and encouraging and also sort of speaks again to the, to the importance of having um, some awareness of how these studies have been done in the past so we don't feel like we're having to just start over again. So I, I want to ask you a connected question with that because I feel like sometimes, not that social psychology and history are at odds, but I sometimes wonder how they work together. So when we talk about how humans do things, you know, one way to talk about this backlash issue um, and this stigma issue is that's just what human beings do when they feel threatened. And, and I see those kinds of, um, you know, discussions out there. And so it may be normal to expect that in a pandemic, and we can go back in history and say that there, there's a sort of a normal social functioning of finding an outsider, an outside agent in which to focus blame. And that that even can be some sort of a form of social cohesion is finding an outside of the blame. Okay, we put a pin in that. But on the other side, I mean, as a historian, I just feel like these contexts really matter too. I mean, the anti-Muslim 
you know, the context of anti-Muslim hate in America, it existed before 9-11. And, you know, the fact that the president of the United States, and not only the president of the United States, um, used language like the Wuhan virus, the Chinese virus, very clearly framing it as as some sort of a, a pandemic that had to do with an external force, unwanted, coming into this coming into this country. But of course, Donald Trump didn't create anti-Chinese sentiment in America. I mean, the 19th and early 20th century are full of anti-Asian laws, anti-Asian Jim Crow, as well as Japanese internment in the 1940s. So, I mean, it's a long-standing sort of cultural note that's in American life. It's almost an impossible question to put to you, but I want to know how you think about it a little bit. Are we talking about human brains here or are we talking about sort of the maintenance of long-term social context? Mm. Uh, Well, Scott, this is why these sorts of cross-disciplinary collaborations are so important because I think it's both and that um, as you just noted that we, those of us who are focused on sort of what what is the social context right now Um, and historians help us to understand how we got to this point where we are we we need both of us working together and what you're saying about how much the context matters so in my um in behind the backlash i offer this model to try to help explain when we are most likely to see backlash violence in the aftermath of a disaster. Because interestingly, blame and scapegoating have received relatively little attention in the broader disaster literature, Hmm. um, except for in sort of very specific disaster events and so forth. And so blame and scapegoating, I think, are sort of understudied and theorized. And so one of the things that I did in the book was I, I have this model of backlash violence in the first characteristic in the model is related to understanding the pre-existing context, that you're absolutely right that anti-Muslim sentiment after 9-11 did not just come out of nowhere. It didn't happen when those towers, it didn't, it wasn't generated from the towers falling. It was already existing. The same thing with the uh, anti-Asian and anti-Chinese sentiment that we're seeing right now. This did not come out of nowhere. It's been sort of a long standing pattern as you suggested. And for those reasons, I always try to be really careful with the use of the word unprecedented because it is yeah. true that after 9-11, for example, that spike, how big the spike was after 9-11 in backlash violence, that was unprecedented in terms of how large and how dramatic the spike was, but it was not unprecedented in terms of we saw similar spikes in backlash violence after the Oklahoma City bombings when Arabs and Muslims were wrongly accused of committing bombings which were later revealed to be committed by two white men. We saw them after the 1993 World Trade Center bombings. There's just exactly what you're saying that these, again, when we see these incidents of dramatic blame and scapegoating, there is oftentimes this long-standing pre-existing context that is informing what then plays out in in the moment of disaster. I want to remind people that my guest today is Lori Peake from the Natural Hazard Center at the University of Colorado. And please do get your questions into the YouTube live chat. We can take those questions as we go. And then also we've got a couple of tweets just um, saying how much they're enjoying the conversation, but also please get questions in on Twitter. Okay, so um, 
let me turn, let's just stay in this vein a little bit and sort of talking a, a bit about your previous work, but I want to talk now about Hurricane Katrina, because I know that's been a really sort of dominant subject in your, in your research. And, you know, Children of Katrina, um, this is a book that focuses on displacement. Um, and in this context, low-income African-Americans, women, um, have been the focus of much of, of that work. And, you know, now we're seeing um, some news, some really terrible news emerging about the loss of life in African-American communities in the United States because of COVID-19, communities of color, Latino communities. And the, the, so this pattern, you know, early on, it was a little confounding because it seemed like it was the wealthiest in America, the most powerful that were um, being struck. Now it turns out maybe they were just the only ones who could get tests. Um, and so we're reverting back to what has been an unfortunate but sort of normal pattern that disasters punch down. I've even been trying to think about this, you know, kind of mapping this onto this social science concept of intersectionality, that people who face multiple different kinds of bias, um, you know, they have some compounded challenges that they have to deal with in society, that, that bias isn't just one of one type. And if you're compounding disasters on top of that, you get this, I think, really, really um, very difficult um, set of challenges that these communities are facing. So given that reality and your own experience working closely with these communities over a long stretch of time, um, how have you thought about those injustices in the context of disaster? What can this research community, our research community, do to provide information, research that can help to, you know, in the curve on that, on those kinds of injustices. Yeah, Scott, thank you so much for bringing this into the conversation, both inequality and intersectionality. Um, I just read today that uh, the state of Michigan, for example, 14% of the state of Michigan's population is African American, but early numbers are suggesting that 40% of the deaths in, in Michigan are African American. Uh, we're seeing reports from environmental frontline communities, uh, indigenous communities, African-American communities, Latinx communities that have long been environmental sacrifice zones and battlefronts in the environmental yeah. justice movement that we're seeing similar patterns where people are already suffering from highly disparate rates of asthma and other forms of environmental health and environmental injustices. We're seeing these kinds of patterns emerge across the US. And Scott, you are absolutely right that one of the um, most enduring lessons of disaster is related to this issue with exposing and further opening up already existing fault lines. And so when the fault lines that run across our society are on the basis of race, gender, age, disability, mm. our economic standing, when we already have major inequalities that exist as we do in this nation, that obviously affects population's ability to prepare for these events, even when we see them coming, even when we know they're coming, it then leads to disproportionate impacts. So who suffers first and suffers most, who is most likely to die or to be injured in these events. These are the people that are already marginalized. And then when it comes to the recovery process, 
who struggles the most in the recovery and has the most protracted recovery experience. Um, this, this, again, there are, we could fill an entire library and entire libraries at the DRC, University of Delaware and at our library at the Hazard Center are full of studies that, that show how pre-existing vulnerabilities play out across the disaster life cycle. So I think that is one of the most clear and present areas of many areas where our scholarship in social sciences and disaster could really be further brought to bear in the response to this pandemic. So these injustices don't get only further deepened and more people don't suffer even further. So the everyday violence that occurs in a place like Reserve, Louisiana, uh, or Port Arthur, Texas, or Flint, Michigan, um, it, it always gets some sort of low level of media coverage. And there's always scholars working in these places, and there are important environmental justice activists of longstanding in these places who are working, whether or not they're making headlines in the New York Times. Do disasters open a moment in which we can possibly re-examine race? I mean, you know, the amount of news coverage that's that is um, going already right now in the last week to these issues is important. And it's in the context of a disaster event, but it's exposing disasters of long of long standing. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I feel like there's on the one hand, you look at that and you say, wow, we have to be shown once again that there's racial disparity in America. But on the other hand, it's on the front page of The New York Times. And that counts for something, doesn't it? Is there an opening in this moment? I I think there there absolutely is an, um, uh, an opening, and I think we are clearly at a crossroads. Uh, we're at a, a crossroads in terms of exactly how far can a society be stretched when so uh, many are struggling so mightily. And that's what has honestly been weighing so heavily, not just on my mind as a sociologist, but also on my heart, because we know full well that um, millions and millions and millions of American, Americans were already struggling to get by before this pandemic started to unfold. And now with the job numbers that are coming out with, with the, just every single day with the deeply devastating news, that is um, being brought to the forefront by journalists and others who are working so hard to um, cover the various dimensions of this disaster. And so this is a moment and uh, political scientists like Tom Berklin, as you well know, one of your mm -hmm. guests, yeah. uh, has written extensively about the policy windows that do open up mm -hmm. in disasters, but those policy windows close quickly. Right. And Sometimes things fly through the windows, other times they don't. And so right now, I think this really is such a moment for us to think collectively as a society, for us to think um, as a research community, again, about what we already know, what do we still need to know, what data do we need to help mm -hmm. inform the policy that is going to be made in response to this disaster. And so there, there is a moment and that moment, um, this policy window, I can't wait to hear what Tom has to say about this because obviously this pandemic is going to be cascading. It's gonna be unfolding over a period of not just weeks, over a period of months and maybe even years. And what is that gonna mean for sort of mm -hmm. our policy making for our collective decision making mm -hmm. as communities and as a society? 
I think as Samantha Montano, who I've had on twice now, and she's amazing, has, has explained, this is a, um, unlike events that we've seen in that it's a 50 state and seven territorial response. And so in a sense, I mean, back to what we were just talking about, maybe it fits into a pre-existing narrative that there will be urban poverty in New Orleans or in St. Louis or in, in New York, but this pandemic is gonna strike every community in America. And in some of these communities, the numbers of deaths may, in the end, we might look at them and say, oh, that seems to be a relatively small number, but in comparison to the population of that place, or in comparison to the health capacity of that place, those numbers could be devastating. Um, so I do think, as you said, you know, to this moment of a window opening, this is quite a unique moment in that regard. I don't know, you know, we don't have disaster research centers in all 50 states and all seven territories. So the work is going to be really, really intense in the coming, you know, months and, and years. And I, I wanted to turn to that next because thank you for talking about your research, but there's another part of what you do, and that's um, your part, an important part of the American disaster research infrastructure. So I wonder if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little about that, about your role at the Natural Hazard Center, maybe a little bit about the background of the, of the Hazard Center, and how are you part of its story? How is it part of your, your story? Tell us a little bit about hazards. Sure, thank you, and I, I want to say thank you at the outset for what you said about the Natural Hazard Center team, because we do have an extraordinary team of uh, just an extraordinary team at the Natural Hazard Center, undergraduate student, graduate students, full time team members who are there and our Hazard Center really exists and we do work for the broader community. And so the Natural Hazard Center was founded at the University of Colorado Boulder following the publication of the first assessment of natural hazards in the United States, which was led by our founding director, the eminent geographer, Gilbert White. And one of the recommendations in that first assessment was related to the need for a national clearinghouse mm -hmm. to um, help to connect various entities within the hazards and disaster field. And so the Natural Hazard Center was founded in 1976 at the University of Colorado Boulder. And our mission is really fourfold. And so our mission is to translate and to share information, is to facilitate connections between researchers, practitioners, policy makers, the media, and others to generate new knowledge and new information in the social science domain, but also in increasingly interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary spaces, and to train and mentor a diverse next generation of hazards and disaster researchers and practitioners. And so for over four decades, the Natural Hazard has been the National Science Foundation designated information clearinghouse for the societal dimensions of hazards and disasters for the nation. And so in that role, it is very important for us to serve this much broader and rapidly growing hazards and disaster research community. And so that's who we are and what we do. And um, I, I, I love this community of scholars and practitioners that we work with. Um, you ask a little bit about my history, Scott. So yeah. I will say um, I came to the Hazard Center actually in August of 1999. 
I was a new graduate student in sociology at the University of Colorado Boulder, and I had been hired as a graduate research assistant at the Natural Hazard Center. And I didn't know it on that day when I walked into the Natural Hazard Center, but that was uh, maybe the most important single day in my professional life because it set me on this path of getting to work with the most extraordinary people I could ever imagine, meeting people who have dedicated their whole lives to trying to understand and to understand social forces that create disasters and to try mm -hmm. to do better to lessen those forces. And so I, I was a research assistant at the Natural Hazard Center and graduated from the University of Colorado Boulder in 2005, and then came back in 2017 as the director following Kathleen Tierney, who uh, is gonna be another one of your guests yeah, on your show. And absolutely. so, yeah, so that's kind of my history there and what we do people that I'm uh, speaking with Lori Peak, the director of the Natural Hazard Center. And I also want to give a shout out um, to a sociology of disaster class right now at State University of New York, Canton, and Professor Daniel McLean, who's leading that class right now. So thank you all for joining us today. And I want to encourage people to get questions into us either by Twitter, you can just tag me at US of Disaster or get your questions in to the YouTube live chat. Uh, I had had a couple of opportunities myself to visit the Hazard Center when I was um, working um, on my uh, first book. And, um, you know, I was aware of its august history and the people who had passed through there and really, you know, I mean, Gilbert White and, and sort of fundamental concepts about how we think about human systems interacting with natural systems and the formation of disaster as a social product. I mean, I was a little bit nervous uh, when I went there uh, to use the library and to meet Kathleen Tierney. And uh, my strongest memory of that first research visit is sitting um, on the front porch close by interviewing Kathleen Tierney for two hours. Um, and in my tape of that, and it was a tape of that conversation, you can hear the sprinkler in the background. It was such a, just like a, uh, literally a front porch kind of conversation, but it behind us were the records of social science, um, you know, around disaster, just like the Disaster Research Center has its important, and Delaware has its important collection. So I think that's an important role, and I want to, in that sense, role for the Hazard Center is to be an available place, a welcoming place, a place where people um, who come from different backgrounds can feel like, yeah, they can go there and, and connect, or in these days, they don't physically go there and connect, but still connect. Um, and in that regard, I want to ask you about some of the specific projects that you have underway. And let's start with the Converge project. I know this precedes the COVID-19, but now this is a big part of what Converge is about. Can you talk to us about that project? 
Absolutely. And before I answer that, I should say hello to Daniel McLean and to the class. Uh, Daniel was actually a graduate student at Colorado State University and completed his PhD there and then uh, moved, moved back east where he is from. And so hi to the class and thank you for being here with Scott and I today. Um, so thank you for asking about Converge. Converge was funded in 2018 by the National Science Foundation, and it's a five-year project. We are part of the broader natural hazards engineering research infrastructure for the nation. And so we're part of this much larger network of shared use facilities that the NSF has funded for the United States to try to mitigate hazards losses and try to improve collective well-being. And Converge is the one facility in the network that is led by social scientists and involves social scientists, but then also connects extensive networks of geotechnical engineers, structural engineers, nearshore scientists, operations and systems engineers, social scientists from across the spectrum, and so forth. And so Converge is really rooted in uh, convergence, the principles of convergence research, which are really at their root about bringing together a deep disciplinary in, uh, expertise to try to encourage transdisciplinary work and to focus on specific and compelling problems to try to bring that transdisciplinary expertise to help to solve major societal problems and scientific issues. And so um, Converge is uh, really about connection, coordination, scientific rigor, and doing the most ethical and holistic research that we possibly can. And um, so we've been building that social infrastructure over the past year. We have several extreme events, research and reconnaissance networks that we're bringing together across these various disciplinary spaces. And as you mentioned, Scott, since the pandemic has happened, we have really mobilized the Converge network in a variety of ways. And so a couple of things we're doing, and then I love your question, so I'll just kind of pause. I'll just kind of give you a high-level overview and then sure, see sure. where you want to go. Yeah. Um, but a few of the things we've been doing, we've held two large Converge virtual forums where we've invited members of the research community to both come and share about their research and to connect with one another. So we can reduce duplication of effort, but also to try to encourage data sharing, encourage amplification of efforts. So we've had these virtual forums. We've also just recently launched the first global research registry for COVID-19 research in the social sciences and public health. So for all the researchers out there with new projects, we hope you'll go to converge.colorado.edu and sign up your project. That registry is already available in four languages and we're hoping to expand the number of languages that it's available in. And then also, we're getting ready to fund 30 COVID-19 working groups on a variety of different topics to, again, bring the research community together to promote that data sharing, to promote, um, that, to promote convergent science in the context of this disaster, because it really is going to take all of us working together and bringing our best selves in response to this crisis. Mm. So that's so many different projects working at the same time at different scales. And I just, before we leave this, I wanna, there's 
other projects as well or other things that you're connected with, like the Social Science Extreme Events Research Project, Interdisciplinary Science and Engineering Extreme Events Research. Can you say a little bit more about these as well? Because I think people listening are going to want to hear about the full ecosystem of research opportunities that are out there right now. Yes, absolutely. And also, I should really say, in addition to the things that we're doing specifically through Converge with the research coordination and supporting the registry and the groups, the COVID-19 working groups, in addition to that, also through the Natural Hazard Center, we put out a special call for quick response research proposals. For 35 years, the Natural Hazard Center has also has administered a National Science Foundation funded small grants program. And Jennifer Tobin at the Natural Hazard Center administers that and is getting ready to release the persons who receive the quick response small grants funds in about amount of $3,000, but to support emerging research. So again, all those pieces, they do connect together in various ways, including as you ask, I'm also the principal investigator for two of the NSF coordinating networks. So one is SCIR, which is for social scientists, and we take a very broad definition of social scientists. Mm -hmm. And so for people in the humanities, for social scientists, for public health and medicine, we have people across that broad spectrum who've joined SCIR. We actually have over a thousand members of our social science extreme events research network globally and you can go to the converge.colorado.edu website and actually see an interactive map so you can see where those researchers are located you can find out about their expertise what uh, disasters they've studied what their disciplines are and what their methodological expertise is and so we have the SCR network and then i'm also the principal investigator for the ICR network, which is interdisciplinary science and engineering extreme events research. And what ICR is really doing is trying to provide best practice guidance for multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, and transdisciplinary teams who are coming together in the context of extreme events research. So I know one of the things that you're attentive to, and you signaled earlier, is that um, in the larger picture of funding for disaster science in America, a lot of it goes to, to engineering and into big data and a smaller percentage of it proportionally goes into social science. And I, and I, uh, I want to come to a question here from Kim Fortune because I think it's in this context. Kim is asking, um, what do you see as the need for new capacity within so the social science disaster research community? Um, what do we need to grow going forward? to maybe grow our proportion of that um, funding in that research space, what are the new directions that we could uh, move in so that we see social science more fully represented in these large-scale um, funding projects coming out of NSF or other government agencies? Yes, and hi, Kim. Thank you so much for that question. I think um, this disaster is really, in many ways, uh, transformational moment for our social science community in terms of just this recognition of the the deep societal impacts their historical tale the the, the cultural the economic the political the the sociological again just across the social science spectrum there has been no 
aspect of our social world, of our personal lives that has gone untouched by this pandemic. And so I think that right now there is this recognition of, in addition to our colleagues in the life sciences, in uh, medicine, in engineering, that also just the, the, the profound importance of the social sciences at this moment, I think is, it's so clear and I think it is being recognized. Um, I don't want to name numbers, but I think at the National Science Foundation as part of the uh, its stimulus that was passed that there was obviously funding in there for NSF and other scientific agencies and the social behavioral and economic division as well as the um, engineering and so forth, they are really already issuing many rapid grants that are um, reflective of cutting edge research questions as well as enduring problems that this field has been tackling. So Kim, to your specific questions about new, what new capacity and new directions are out there, just very briefly, I think one thing is to recognize, as I know Scott's uh, participants all do, that there already is this core of knowledge that's out there that's ready to be tapped and to be mm -hmm. built upon. And then in terms of new capacity and new directions, I think as the, the whole world seeks to understand the societal ramifications, the cultural ramifications, political and economic ramifications of this disaster, that it's going to take a social science workforce that is trained, that is diverse, that is ready to respond to these questions. So I think there needs to be an investment in training and mentoring and education at a time when I know many graduate students are very concerned about their funding and their futures and their prospects in this environment. I think this is exactly when we need to invest in this next generation. I also think there's a lot of need for data, 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 data that's available, data infrastructure that the social science community is building and can tap into. And so the last thing I'll say on that is that the NSF actually with their funding and with their foresight, they have invested in the design safe cyber infrastructure at the University of Texas Austin. Converge has been working with Design Safe over for over a year and a half to build the first social science and interdisciplinary data model that will now allow social scientists can go and publish their de-identified data, but we can also publish our data collection protocols, we can publish our research instruments, and we can get a permanent digital object identifier for that. And so that means mm. if Scott Knowles puts together a survey instrument tomorrow, rather than me going out and creating my own survey instrument, I could actually go to the design safe cyber infrastructure, find Scott's published survey instrument, hopefully build upon that, use that, allowing for cross comparison, which is gonna be so vital in this global disaster. And so we already do have some of the vital um, infrastructure that's been built, but now we need to make sure that we're communicating, we're sharing, that we're training a new generation and making sure that we're able to use that and to advance our data sharing capabilities. Okay, so I want to stay with this for a second because you're talking about the um, particular areas of research need. Some of it is about, I think, rediscovering the wealth that's already in the treasure chest, you know, 75 years of disaster social science, much of which holds up really well. Um, and sort of rediscovering old science is work and bringing that to policymakers, to practitioners is 
his work. So we need translation and implementation work, but there's also frontiers up there. There's one that's vexing me a little bit, and I wonder if we can talk about it, and it is around, it is around comparability. Because even the way that these funding schemes work, it's the United States National Science Foundation, Korea National Research Foundation. I mean, each country, of course, we still live in a world of nations, and so, so much of the funding um, national level funding is just that. It seems to be focused on solving problems of national need. But I can't help but think that there is a problem here, even in the way we, we were talking about earlier about bias and the way that the national responses have varied across different countries. In the WHO's stumbles here, that we've underfunded our capacity, we've under theorized our capacity to think across barriers. So I guess I'm, I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying about these, these really robust and exciting new areas for funding for social science disaster research, but if it's only focused on the United States, I, I'm worried it's not gonna get us very far. What's your view on that? Yes, and what you described is true. And I have to say though, one of the a very inspiring story that I read um, was about how the medical community has obviously mobilized in response to this and have sort of thrown, again, old, old competitive norms out the window that they're saying, we're going to put our data up here. We're going to publish this early. We're going to share everything that we have so we can come together as a global scientific community to try to respond to this virus. And I think that what is happening there and that um, that desire to do good, to apply science for the public good, I think that that has been at the core of social science hazards and disaster research from the beginning. And so I think that even if we have funding from the National Science Foundation or we have funding in Korea or India or Japan or um, in Chile, that how can we come together when we're thinking about the formation of our teams, when we're thinking about how and where and when we're going to share findings for the journal editors who are out there. I think a lot of really interesting things are happening with early publication with journals and moving science into the fore really quickly. So again, it's always that combination of our structures of possibility, as you're suggesting, Scott. So where, where are our almost limitless possibilities being foreclosed because of some of these narrow structures and where can we use this as an opportunity to look at some of those old walls and say those walls have to come down because this pandemic is requiring us to do science in new and different ways and I think people are thinking about these questions they're doing novel things and I think this is a moment that could lead to even a further more dramatic culture shift what you're doing right here this is this is a novel this is a novel way of allowing us to communicate and so how do we harness this energy and this positivity in the face of tremendous suffering, I think is a very important question right now. I want to remind folks we're talking with Lori Peak from the Natural Hazard Center. We can still get questions in. Lori, uh, do you have to be somewhere in five minutes? Could you stay an extra 10 minutes? Would that be okay? Because we do have more questions coming. I would, I would absolutely welcome that. And I am definitely not leaving my home. I am following recommendations. Okay. Good. That was a trick question and you passed. Very good. Um, so I want to get to a question here from Fallon Samuel Sadu, um, dear colleague and writing from New Orleans. Um, and Fallon is asking, um, this is a really great question. Lori, how do you envision the distancing requirements 
of pandemic mitigation, how do you think they're going to affect social science disaster research? Um, particularly when we think about the kind of field research that usually comes around, let's say, hurricanes. You know, researchers in the field, even your own work post-Katrina, where you're making these personal, long-standing, I know, um, connections with young people who are now not that young anymore, these children are now adults. I mean, you're maintaining these connections in person, I think, in many cases, or you establish those connections in in person. I had a chance, we talked with Valerie Marlowe about this. I've talked with other folks about this, Sarah DeYoung about this. But I, I would like to hear your take on this. And thank you, Fallon, for the question. Yes, and thank you so much, Fallon. And I want to give a couple of shout outs to Fallon. First, I hope you are safe and all of your people you care for in New Orleans are doing well. And also a shout out to Fallon that she has been part of the COVID-19 working groups and the virtual forum calls. And she and some colleagues have an absolutely brilliant idea to really mobilize around the ideas of um, what's happening in commercial corridors in majority minority communities, where we know oftentimes women-owned, minority-owned businesses are especially vulnerable. So Fallon, thank you for the work you're doing. And thank you for for asking this question about how we do social science in the face of a pandemic. Um, there's also been COVID-19 working groups that have been proposed by Jack Rozdilski and Liesl Ritchie really looking at the doing of research and research on research. So how are researchers adapting their methods, their approaches in the face of this pandemic where some of the classic uh, toolkit we can't reach into as social scientists. So mm. we can't go out and put our pound the pavement as Chicago school ethnographers did and right. go out and interview people, do focus groups, do some of the things that really are the tools of our trade. So um, obviously things, we, they are going to change. And Fallon, you're absolutely right to ask this. They already are changing. But I am so proud, as I always am, of our community for how quickly we're adjusting and adapting, figuring out how to do things like virtual online focus groups, doing Zoom interviews, just like this one, where we can still record it, we can still transcribe it. Um, is there any replacement for in-person human interaction, the human touch, the power of seeing someone in their full self and being able to recognize them and to offer the dignity that comes with being in the presence of another human being? This format will never replace that. But until we can come together in those ways that human communities require, for now, I think um, social scientists, we are going to have to adapt. We recognize we're going to need to adapt and we already are adapting. And I think it's very important that we do document these adaptations and learn from them, which is again why I'm so glad that Liesl and Jack and their colleagues and their working groups are already proposing to do just that. I, you know, your answer also makes me makes me think about, uh, we had Amy Hemry on talking and Amy Slayton talking about disability and disaster. And, and one of Amy Hemry's points is that you know, disability um, community broadly, there's many people in that community who deal with distance, have dealt with distance as a part of their daily life um, because of mobility issues or chronic health conditions. And that now is the time to turn to that community, both as activists, but also as researchers. Um, and uh, not to challenge what you said, that the importance of that human interaction and touch is important, but to 
to see how they have managed that and cope that, like, cope with that, how they build and maintain communities sometimes at distance, um, and how when mobility is hard, that doesn't mean you have to lose solidarity. And I'm, I'm really channeling Amy's work here when I talk about that. I think this is an opening for us, we talked about openings, to really bring that kind of work directly into the mainstream of disaster research. I, I love it. That is absolutely beautiful and so well said. And thank you for bringing that additional dimension and that we need to we need to learn from what is already so. And we need to honor what people already know. So let me come to, um, okay, let me ask you, I have a couple of questions coming in, but I wanna ask you this before I turn to, to one of those. Um, in the course of my career and your career, there've been, um, there've been some defining moments, more than we would like. 9-11, you talked about, um, we talked about Hurricane Katrina, I think the Indian Ocean tsunami just before, we can kind of lump those, those events into one moment. Um, and then Fukushima, it seemed, and you know, disaster research funding is often very reactionary, unfortunately, but that's the reality of it. And there are these waves of funding that come from each of these. So terrorism studies following 9-11, I think um, maybe a rediscovery of, of hazards and natural systems after Katrina combined with human systems. But in the last few years, there's been, to me, a lot of progress around social science research in slow disaster, particularly environmental justice and climate change. And you didn't have to, just, you didn't have to explain to people anymore that there was a connection between a bad hurricane system season and climate change. So that's been positive. But on the other hand, I'm a little worried about us being able to do two things at once. Do you think COVID-19 is going to shift our focus? off of the slow disaster of climate change? Or are we gonna be able to manage those two different research streams simultaneously? And if so, how are we gonna do that? That is a huge question, but I, you're the right person to ask. Uh, well, th thank you for raising that. And, um, you know, rightfully so, every morning, the first news story that we see is related to COVID-19, but that also means that there are news stories that aren't the first story we see or may not be written at all because of the pressing importance of this pandemic. And so always questioning, what are we hearing? What are we seeing? What are we learning? But also what are we not hearing, seeing and learning right now? And what's falling to the wayside when an already stretched system is now sort of doing that dramatic turn as you described happened after 9-11, it happened after Katrina, it's happening right now where this apparatus is attempting to, to turn to focus on pandemic. Um, I guess my thought on that, Scott, is this is absolutely, uh, this is one of the, the many things for, I think, our hazards research community to really mobilize around is how do we keep our focus, uh, how do we keep our focus on the range of threats, the range of root causes for the threats that are unfolding in front of us? How do we do that right now as already limited resources are being directed to the pandemic and life-saving activities, but as other disasters are unfolding? Um, as I've you know, said several times, natural hazards are not going to stand down in the face of this pandemic. And they've already proven that as our earth has shaken in Croatia and Utah and Idaho as, as almost warning signs, reminding us bigger earthquakes are coming. Hurricane season is coming. 
tornado season is here. And so the heat waves are coming. And so how do we keep that focus on the multiple hazards that we're facing? This is something our hazards and disaster research community has long fought for um, and, and tried to really keep that focus on the interconnection of these threats. While they may be different hazards agents, that there are oftentimes root, common root causes to the disaster risks that we face. So uh, poor land use planning rising social and economic inequality, climate change, all of uh, poor building code implementation and adoption, all of these sorts of root cause issues then feed into the large scale disasters that we see. And so I think if we can sort of really keep this multi-hazard perspective, um, really advocate for our federal mission agencies that do this work and make sure that we are getting proper funding for mitigation and preparedness across these different hazard type, I think is absolutely vital because the next disaster is just around the corner as we're trying to battle um, this pandemic. Let me come to a question from Jason Von Metting, and it, it taps back into um, earlier in our conversation, but worth circling back to, certainly. Jason asks, the pandemic is exposing seemingly in slow motion the root causes of risk that we always talk about, how people are forced to bear vulnerability. And he's asking, what stories most need to be amplified right now? And we talked about a couple of those, maybe you know, Asian American, Chinese communities, African American communities, but maybe we can go a little more granular than that. Are there specific voices we should be listening to right now or that, that you're listening to when you want to really dive into those kinds of challenges and hear that the human voice, if it's a reporter or a particular community, a particular advocate that you stay close to in this moment, can you share some of that with us? Yes. And Thank you, Jason, for that question. And thank you to Jason and Ksenia for their Disasters Deconstructed podcast and their focus on stories this year. Um, I, stories, are, stories are absolutely crucial. And Scott, I was even thinking at the beginning, again, how powerful it is that you start this podcast uh, or that this radio show every, every single day with the the numbers the numbers of the the cases how many cases have been confirmed the world over how many deaths have been confirmed as a result of this pandemic but one of the things that we know is that oftentimes numbers have this way of sort of becoming a gray statistical blur to people and what oftentimes sticks with people is when we couple those numbers with stories. And it's stories that can help us to illustrate um, the, the core sort of principles and concepts that we're trying to articulate. And so I, I just, I think I, I don't want to sort of answer with just one person mm -hmm. that I'm, I'm listening to, but I will, I just want to uplift this question and just say how much stories matter and how important it is to leave space for stories. And over the past 15 years, Alice Fothergill and I have had the gift of listening to the stories of children. And so I guess the, I close this answer by saying that uh, one set of stories that I don't think we've been hearing enough are the stories of children mm. and hearing from children and what this disruption is doing to their lives and the fears that they're experiencing, but also the things that children are doing in response to this pandemic 
Children make up a quarter of our population, but they sure don't make up a quarter of the stories that are making their way into the media and making the way into our hearts and minds. And so I guess that's what I'd say is that I'm trying to listen the best I can to children and to how this disaster is affecting children and trying to understand what this is meaning to them and what their fears are so that maybe we can do a better job to respond as adults who sometimes hold the levers of power and are making decisions that are gonna have profound impacts on children's futures. Are you gonna do a Children of COVID-19 project? So um, the one and only Alice Fothergill and I have been, of course, communicating about this mm. and are trying to figure out um, what we're going to do in response to this and um, how, how we are going to work together on this. And so I guess that's when I would say stay tuned because just like after Katrina, Alice and I came together and we just said, how can we do anything? Because we were both in the yeah. middle of projects and teaching and I was a new assistant professor, but then we said to each other, how can we not do something? Because it was just, it was one of those moments that we said we, we have to come together. And so Alice and I are talking about that right now. So maybe we can be one of your co-guests on your show in the future. No. That would be great. I mean, probably some of the children of Katrina now have their own children and they're home with them with COVID-19. I mean, the, again, thinking generationally and thinking about this disaster intersectionality opens dimensions of this that are really important. And I know you just in the <clears throat> longitudinal way you've written about you know children growing up after Katrina that the disaster doesn't end when the last FEMA check is cut these disasters we just stop counting things we stop writing things down you get something very powerful about the approach of talking to children also because their perception of what they live through changes obviously all of our own perceptions change but they change less as we're adults I think your your insight there is crucial and also your your insight, and I know we do have some reporters um, who tune in for this, the, the under coverage of children. Of course, there's problems. I mean, as we were talking earlier, how do you, you know, how do you write those stories? How do you, how do you get into those communities of schools or other places where children are, are shielded rightfully? Um, that takes some research um, creativity. So I will definitely take you on your, up on your offer to bring Alice, uh, Father Gill, and you to come back and talk about that. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to get one more quick question um, in, and then we'll conclude. I want to ask you, this is a hypothetical, um, but let's suppose um, you could get five minutes with the head of HHS or FEMA, um, or maybe even in the White House right now, and, and brief them as to what you think they need to be most attentive to next. What's coming next with this disaster as it plays out what would you how would you advise them hmm. so the first two things that came to my mind were number one wanting to bring up the inequalities that this disaster is already revealing so starkly and how important it is to mitigate what is already unfolding and to invest and to start investing at our most fragile points of our society and start investing in the people who are the most marginalized. So that's the first thing. The second thing that immediately came to my mind was that 
we oftentimes want to think of disasters as if they're marked off as time and space, that there's a clear beginning and a clear end, and that one of the things that's already becoming apparent with this disaster is it is going to be followed by multiple disasters. It's going to be followed by economic disasters that are already unfolding with the millions of Americans who've already lost their jobs, not to speak of what's going to happen globally in our economy. Uh, it's already being followed by the reported increases in domestic violence, in child abuse. Um, these are the disasters that follow the disaster when communities and families are left without vital uh, social safety nets and when there aren't proper supports and resources. And so I think some kind of briefing on what that already marginalized and what can be done to stem that tide of the disasters that are yet to follow from this disaster. I want to remind everyone that tomorrow we'll be talking about pandemics in history with Julia Ingleschalt and Jacob Remus. And I want to really thank uh, Lori Peake for her generosity with ideas and everything that she does for this research community and also for giving me an idea which I'm going to steal, which is I now need to couple those statistics at the start of every one of the COVID calls with a, with a story. Um, and maybe people can help me with that. So if you have a, a story of solidarity or courage or trouble or challenge in these times that you'd like to share um, and have uh, read out on, on COVID calls, please email me those or, or um, send them to me on Twitter, however you can get them to me. Um, and thanks for that idea, Lori. Thank you so much, Lori Peake, for all that you do and for joining me today on COVID Calls. Thank you, Scott, for hosting these calls. It is, a, it is an incredible service to our world and now part of our historical archive of this moment. So thank you so much. And we'll talk to you all. Yeah, thanks, Lori. We'll talk to you all tomorrow at uh, 5 o'clock Eastern time. Thanks.